If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hello, Pod Save the UK listeners. This is Nish Kumar. I am here with Coco Khan. Hiya! We have recorded an episode in the studio, uh, and in my opinion, it's an excellent episode, maybe our best so far, uh, and uh, you will hear that uh, anon. However, we're recording a special introduction to you uh, because the Privileges Committee has published its findings uh, on Boris Johnson. Uh, and that has happened this morning after we completed the recording. Uh, but we've decided to hop on and just have a quick chat about it. Let me phrase it like this. When the film Cats came out, we had all seen pictures of the film Cats. We'd seen little clips from the trailer of the film Cats. We knew it was going to be bad. And yet somehow when we saw it, it was even worse than we'd imagined. And that is all I can say about this Privileges Committee report. Um, the key findings here are, are that uh, Boris Johnson had knowledge of the COVID rules and guidance, had knowledge of the breach of rules and guidance that occurred in number 10 and misled Parliament. And so the committee has recommended a 90-day suspension, which is nine times longer than the 10 days required uh, to trigger a by-election. Um, Coco, uh, what's your immediate thoughts to seeing this? Uh, my my immediate thought is, wow, Commons is a lot like school. So you know how when you uh, <laughs> got a detention, but then you argued, they're like, right, two detentions. And then you argued again, three detentions. And then, then all your mates got in detention as well. It was a, a bit like that. The committee were already going to recommend a 10-day suspension and that would have triggered a by-election. But because of his letter that he released and all the mudslinging, what did he call them again? A kangaroo court. They yeah. increased the the... The recommendation to 90 days. So that is like uh, one of the largest recommendations they've ever given. I think the worst than that was Keith Vaz. He got 180 days if memory serves. So it's it's really, really bad because of his, what they describe as a campaign of abuse and intimidation of the committee. Yeah. And uh, he hasn't stopped that campaign of abuse uh, because uh, along with the Privileges Committee's report being released, Boris Johnson has also issued a 1,700 word rebuttal uh, to the committee uh, where he describes the report as a charade and a load of complete tripe. So, I mean, this may not be the only recording we have to do today. We may have to do another record. (laughs) As a journalist, 1,700 words is a lot to produce. And I think this is probably the hardest amount of words that Boris Johnson in his previous journalistic career has ever had to do. (laughs) I mean, his work ethic is high right now, definitely. He's managed to turn this out at a speed that suggests he really should have finished that stupid fucking Shakespeare book by now. Exactly, exactly. I bet you anything he's chat GPT'd it anyway. But (laughs) the thing that I'm absolutely delighted by is that he is going to lose his pass to Parliament. So he can't access the building anymore. But that is unheard of for someone who has previously been Prime Minister. But also, I like it because you know the bar in Commons is called Strangers Bar. And he can't (laughs) even get into the Strangers Bar. That is delightful for me. Yeah, I think they've recommended uh, his pass be taken off him, which is is 
on top of everything else, a spectacularly petty move that I respect in its pettiness. Oh, actually, you make a good point there, Nish. That's a recommendation. We don't actually know that the uh, the it will be signed off, that it will be agreed by the other MPs. But even so, I'm still delighted. I think it's a good threat. There is a kind of serious issue at stake here, and that is that, you know, this is a historic recommendation by a Commons committee. You know, it's a, it, it's pretty extraordinary that for... Um, and, and you know, for a former prime minister to have this done to them is pretty is pretty incredible stuff. Um, the Lib De- Liberal Democrats are calling for him to lose his hundred and fifteen thousand pound annual allowance that he's paid as an ex prime minister. Uh, the uh, SNP is arguing that it damns Boris Johnson, but also the entire Tory government. Uh, I mean, I- I'm it, there is something strange about seeing Boris Johnson faced with actual consequence. I think maybe that's the bit of this that I'm finding most satisfying because the idea of Johnson's mendacity is well known. You know, he's lost jobs for it in the past, but then immediately been rehired. But this is just, it's sort of set in stone that this man you think is a liar is a liar and was lying. I think that's why I'm finding this somewhat satisfying yeah and it is moving really quickly and lord knows where we're going to be by next week maybe it'll be a three thousand word rebuttal maybe he'll get straight onto tiktok and start doing <laughs> diss tracks i don't know we have no idea this, this but in is the what meantime, I, want. Though, I want the escalation what i want next week coco is for escalation i want boris johnson to have written a seventy thousand word rebuttal and for mps to recommend that he is suspended for the entire span of human existence and civilization <laughs> I want the the Privileges Committee to recommend that Boris Johnson be suspended from Parliament, from watching uh, DVD box sets of Yes Minister, and um, for that suspension to last until the heat death of the planet. That's what I'm hoping for this time next week. Hey, you know, we can hope, we can hope. But in the meantime, Lord knows where we'll be next week. This story will certainly keep going. But here at Pod Save the UK, we're here to prove that politics is not all about Boris Johnson. So we hope you enjoy this week's pod where we'll be focusing on the historic COVID inquiry. Hi Nish, welcome back. It's good to have you back. Did you miss me? Oh my God, yes. (laughs) I really did. I had a little moment where I was reading uh, Boris Johnson's resignation letter. Yeah. And I recorded this little video being like... I saw it, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I know, no one else did. <laughs> <laughs> I like recording this little video for the listeners um, where I was like, oh, don't you think that Boris has really strong fallout boy energy here? Because it's very, <laughs> as he departs in his resignation, he takes shots at everyone being yeah. like, Rishi Sunak and you. It's all very sugar, we're going down swimming. Yes. Going down swimming, going down swinging. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's been an, an emo couple of weeks. I, I was, I, I was in a way happy to be in Canada for most of it, but um, I, because just because I felt oh, it was nice to have a full ocean between me and the Conservative <laughs> Party, <laughs> I, it did make me think like, oh man, I'm quite glad, because because of the time difference as well. I sort of woke up to a load of text messages on our Pod Save the UK WhatsApp group oh, being God. like, what the fuck has happened? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's really funny to come into a... Everyone will know this, but it's very funny to come into a group chat that's like 70 messages <laughs> in. Because obviously the first message you see is the most recent one sent. And to be like, 
I have to try and piece together what has happened from this now. But yeah, it was. Um, I was very happy to be in Canada and very happy to have an ocean between me and the nonsense. Okay, so look, while I was away, everything went to shit in the Conservative Party. And I guess in some ways, this might be why a lot of people feel very angry and frustrated and alienated from politics. Because obviously, there's a huge amount of stuff happening in this country. You know, there's the cost of living, the rising interest rates, spiralling rents, and the mortgage cost situation, right? Which is something we were just talking about on our way in. You're, you're very concerned by it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, it is a political choice. I appreciate that inflation is a massive problem, but that is there is a risk of mass repossessions, and that is a very, very terrifying prospect. So while all of this incredibly serious stuff has been going on, we, you know, we've seen MPs scrabbling for baubles, squabbling amongst each other, avoiding accountability and unleashing chaos that distracts from the really big things the UK that needs saving from. Listen to this whinging from Nadine Dorries. It kind of breaks my heart because that, that's what this story is. This story is about a girl from Breck Road in Liverpool who worked every day of her life since she was 14 years old, had something offered to her for that people from that background don't get offered removed by two privileged posh boys who went to Winchester and Oxford and taken away duplicity and cruelly because they have known for months that it wasn't the case. And yet they let me and they let Boris Johnson continue to believe that was the case. I mean, who gives a shit? (laughs) Like, I'm sorry, who gives a shit? Also, also sorry, go, go, No, go, but go. I'm just, listen, I'm a, I'm a great believer that meritocracy in this country is a bit of a myth, that we have a really entrenched class system. Did nobody tell Nadine Doris that she was involved with the party ensuring yeah, that who's goes been on? in charge for 13 years? <laughs> also, it, I mean, it is very difficult to talk about the country having a, a kind of entrenched class system and upward mobility being ossified by existing structures when what you're talking about <laughs> is getting into the fucking House of Lords. I, I mean... Get over it, mate. Yeah, right. Um, the root of all of this, of course, uh, is Boris Johnson's rule-breaking COVID parties inside Number 10 during the pandemic, which has ultimately brought him down. Um, he has uh, also... So over the weekend, obviously, all of you will know that he has said that he's going to step down as an MP. Um, there are three potential by-elections being triggered it's absolute mayhem as the country burns uh, in the background. Um, but obviously, it's also very symbolic that the COVID inquiry is happening this week. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I am really aware that I'm beginning to sound a little bit like, um, I don't know if you played with dolls when you were a child, Nish, but there was one famous doll that you would pull the string yeah. and it would say like set phrases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I feel, Woody and Toy Story. Yeah, like that. And I feel like I am <laughs> becoming like the left-wing version of that doll. Yeah. Like you just pull my string and I'm like, power to the people! Pull my <laughs> string. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I'm like... If anyone has a 3D printer and uh, <laughs> the time uh, and wants to make Coco Khan dolls, we will sell them. Oh my God. Left-wing Barbie, that is the merch... This is the merch solution that we should do at Pod Save the UK. It can come with like free glue and you can glue it to, you know, unfair um, institutions. But that the glue needs approach. to be ethically sourced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I just mean that like, I know that I always say the same thing, which is that we shouldn't be talking about this. But I also accept that lack of faith in politicians is destroying our democracy and we do need to hold them to account. So actually, just to return to the start of this conversation, did I miss you? No, I didn't actually, because I remember that you were right about this Privileges Committee 
you said it would have a result and that it was worth going through the circus and it has had a result and you weren't here so I don't have to buy you anything. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that offer expired where I said I'd buy you lunch so it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that we're in the final days of us ever having to talk about Boris Johnson again. Like, I really hope that. But the only thing that I would say is, in terms of a lot of the political obituaries that are being written about his career, there is this slight tendency to try and frame Johnson as this kind of person who broke some sort of consensus and came out of the left field and was a kind of meteor that struck an otherwise perfectly habitable political ecosystem. But the thing that really vexes me about this situation is Boris Johnson was the inevitable result of the previous half decade of conservative rule. From 2010, David Cameron and George Osborne created a Petri dish that allowed Boris Johnson to thrive. They cut a huge amount of public spending. Cameron needed to do a deal with the right of his party. So he called the Brexit referendum, which is the thing that opened the door for Boris Johnson to become prime minister. Cameron and Osborne are as complicit in any of this as anyone else is, as is Rishi Sunak, a man who, until about 25 minutes ago, seems to have thought Boris Johnson was a completely honest individual and then suddenly has had a completely virulent change of heart. They are all complicit in the rise of Johnson. He is not an aberration. He was the inevitable consequence of the Conservative Party's rule since 2010. They created the conditions for him to thrive, and now they're all trying to wash his hands of it. If I was George Osborne, I'd shut the fuck up for the rest of my fucking life. I, the fact that Osborne is out there commenting on Johnson, being like, mm, "Well, I see he's got eight. Hey, fuck you!" Like, I swear to God, if I was George Osborne, I would sew my lips shut and never open my goddamn mouth for the rest of my fucking life. Joining us now to help us make sense of what's going on in Westminster is Liz Bates, the political correspondent at Sky News. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. On what, Thank you so much for having me. What I found out is your day off and we've brought you back in to talk about British politics after what I imagine has been a pretty heavy week. <laughs> it has been quite a heavy week and um, I am that much of a nerd that this is kind of my preferred option on my day off. I mean, (laughs) what else am I going to do, right? So when Boris issued his uh, resignation at 8pm on the Friday night, you were like, oh, I'm so happy to go back to my desk. You're a dedicated person, Liz. So I was the only person in the office when that happened. And the interesting thing about that was that he released, as you probably remember, an enormous statement that was like, you know, the type of thing that you write after you've had a couple of glasses of wine and you're like, right, that's it. I'm going to really go to town on everyone and I'm still really pissed off about this thing that happened at school. And, you know, it was like yeah, all yeah, his 100%. grievances. It was like a real dear diary moment. The problem for us was that they then released it. And at the top of it, it said some. it was like a huge news line. The Privileges Committee are going to suspend him for over 10 days. Oh my God, there's going to be, it's going to go to a parliamentary vote. There might be a by-election, all of that. So we were like, Right, get on telly. You know, Sky is rolling news. Get on telly and say that. What we didn't realise was that, you know, 24 paragraphs later, he also said, I'm standing down as an MP. (laughs) And so I went on TV, having just realised that, and the presenter said to me, well, Liz, what do you think about this? You know, it looks like the Privileges Committee are going to suspend Boris Johnson. And so I I had to say to our presenter, I know, and that's not the... That's not the best bit. He's also standing down right now as an MP. 
Um, so yeah, it was utterly hectic and uh, as always with Boris Johnson, jaw-dropping and annoying that he always does it on Friday night when we have uh, no staff in the office. But there you go, that's news. I think it's his great revenge. He used to work in press. He knows, he knows full well. Um, but- can, can I just yeah. say, I'm sure when he wor- when he did work as a journalist, the man never made a deadline in his life. <laughs> no. He's, he's, I think when he was prime minister, I'm not sure that he hit many deadlines either. <laughs> Touché, Liz. But to what extent have, has our whole faith in the political system and the kind of covenant that exists between politicians and the people damaged by this entire affair? I mean, I, I think this has been a period of time where the structures that kind of keep the political, the British political system on the straight and narrow have been tested to their absolute limits. So much of the British political system is about precedent. And Boris Johnson has been a prime minister that has tested that precedent. You know, we have ethics advisors and we have the House of Commons and we have the things like House of Commons committees. And Boris Johnson, uh, I think, has over a long period decided that those things are things to that don't really apply to him. And so that has really tested our institutions, all of our checks and balances. And clearly uh, that is going to filter through to the public. I think what we're seeing now is that some of those some of those institutions are pushing back, yep. looking more robust than they than they were before. So we've got a body within the House of Lords that vets, um, you know, Boris Johnson's honours list, who he who he wants to put in there for a peerage. And uh, clearly Boris Johnson wanted to put in who he wanted. That institution has pushed back. Number 10 have said they won't interfere in the process. Uh, the Privileges Committee has made a decision uh, on issues relating to contempt of parliament and the ministerial code. And in the end, all of those institutions that 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 Boris Johnson has previously been able to get around have won. You know, mm. he he's causing a lot of a lot of trouble. He's getting a lot of tension. He's making a lot of noise. But be clear about this: at this moment, he has lost in in lots of different battles to Rishi Sunak, to the House of Lords, to the House of Commons. The you know, you look at his support on the Conservative benches. Benches that is really. A lot of that, I think, was very much uh, reliant on him being a winner and being in the House of Commons, and that is dwindling. So he, this period where uh, the Prime Minister and political institutions are at loggerheads, I think is over. I wanted to talk to you about Scotland. Mm. You know, there's a former leader there also hitting the headlines for the wrong reasons. Hamza Youssef has rejected calls from both inside and outside the party to suspend Nicola Sturgeon. Um, His predecessor was arrested, questioned and then released as part of an ongoing investigation into the SNP's finances. What do you think about this situation with the SNP? How damaging is it? The, The whole thing really is extraordinary. And actually... In some of the reporting, what I find uh, quite revealing about all of this is how Westminster-focused a lot of our political coverage is. Because when you think about the the utter dominance, not just of the SNP, but of Nicola Sturgeon as a political figure, I mean, she's not even comparable 
I think it's five, five UK prime ministers at the same time as Nicola Sturgeon has been at the top of Scottish politics. She's basically Blair, Thatcher, you know, she is a towering political figure. And then, you know, I remember when she stood down in February and we were all a bit like, what, you know, where on earth has this come from? She was gearing up for this big battle at the next general election over independence. Um, And then to see her arrested and obviously released uh, after that without charge. But the thing that does surprise me is that there's a bit, I think, of a of a lack of focus on it, if anything. Um, but you have to, in terms of the damage that it can do to the SNP, I think no question. I mean, Humza Youssef looks totally out of his depth and unsurprisingly so. In your first few weeks of the job, it's like, where's the kitchen? Where's the toilet? Nice <laughs> to meet you. This is Kevin from accounts. And they're like, okay, ev- literally the building is falling apart. Everything is on fire. Your predecessor's in the back of a police car. Like, Although some I, of the polling data, the guy. some of the polling data is saying that it hasn't dampened support for the SNP, though that's quite unusual, isn't it? Yeah, certainly for independents. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's what's. I suppose the the interesting thing about the SNP is, I mean, uh, Nicola Sturgeon is at the centre of that SNP support, but there's also the totally separate and uh, you know incredibly. It, this this feeling of wanting independence, which is a real emotional attachment for many voters, that they're not just going to give up because the people at the top of the parties change. You know, there's people on both sides of that argument are really committed. And so I don't think it's made any difference as far as I can tell from the latest polls to how people feel about independence. I think in terms of the SNP, it could be difficult for them. I mean, when you look at some of the polling, it looks like the Labour Party are potentially going to make gains. They might take over 20 seats. That's massive. I mean, they have yeah. one MP at the mo- moment up there. Um, and, it, you know, it could chop the SNP support in half-ish. But that's based on the latest polling. We don't know where we'll be at the next general election. But the I, I, do, I, I don't think it's going to dampen um, the, the feeling about independence. But it could have a huge effect on, uh, on the general election. I mean, Keir Starmer is the luckiest leader of the opposition. Uh, that we've seen. Well, in, I think uh, we can all agree that years. it is quite the time to be alive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Liz. So, thank you so thank much for guiding so us much, through Liz. this all. That was brilliant. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com.
So the public phase of the COVID inquiry got underway this week. Government figures show that 227,321 people have died in the UK with COVID mentioned on their death certificate, with the UK recording one of the highest death tolls in Europe. The pandemic, of course, touched all of us in various ways. And the first session began with moving video testimony from some of those who lost their loved ones to COVID, including Jane and Hazel. So within half an hour of me being home and even my dad, my sister was being rushed to hospital, unresponsive. And then all week they were saying, she's not going to make the night, she's not going to make the night. And then I said, can you try and call us then if, you know, you can, if there's time to get us up there, we don't want her to die alone. She was only 54. And she died alone. <laughs> Five days after my dad. It's something I will never, ever get over. And the time that he needed me most, I wasn't there. And that was, and I felt guilty about that, even though it wasn't my fault. They had uh, the bodies in bags that you couldn't even give them an outfit to bury your family in an outfit. They said they, they're in a zipped bag and it's got some lock on it and they're not allowed to break the lock. I'm angry, I need questions answered. I'm just still hurt and I'm still upset. And it's been a couple of years now and we're still upset. And it's not gonna go away just like that. That painful testimony from Jane and Hazel, I'm sure um, our listeners as, are as moved as we were in the studio, it was really horrific hearing. Um, two, they are just two of the thousands of people who shared their experience with the inquiry. The first of six modules is examining how well prepared the UK was for COVID up to January 2020. Lawyers representing the COVID bereaved families for justice group believe this module is the most important. If the UK had been better prepared, some of the difficult decisions in terms of restrictions may not have had to be taken probably some quick points we should raise about the remit of the inquiry. It's about learning lessons and finding out what happened. There's no uh, scope for people to be found innocent or guilty. And also, crucially, any recommendations made do not have to be adopted by governments. And it has no formal deadline, uh, but uh, there's public hearings that are due to be held and findings at this stage are thought to be published in 2026. Scotland is also holding a separate inquiry in addition to the wider UK one. So we're delighted to be joined in the studio now by Dr. Rosena Allen Khan, Shadow Minister for Mental Health, Labour MP for Tooting, and a kickboxer, I hear. Oh, yeah, not too shabby. Kickboxing some. Tories. Actually, no, let's not say that. That's, that's going to be a... You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Immediately. Door knocking. Door knocking. That's a place door that's knocking. handy. Yeah, door knocking. Yeah, I can knock with my kicks. <laughs> yeah. well, that'll get her in trouble as well. Oh, no. And wait for some really awkward pictures. <laughs> and you're a musician as well. Yeah. Like, I re- you, you, do you record music? I used to. I used to do a lot, yeah. But I... I, I uh, yeah, the long story. That's that's. Uh, I basically did loads of music while I was while I was growing up, um, and I wasn't too bad at it. And I got um, sort of a scholarship to go to like a music school at the same time as studying. And then um, I got offered a record contract and had to choose between that or medical school. 
I chose medical school. Oh, that's it's great though. Like we're glad yeah. you did it, but also, oh, yeah. No, don't worry. Don't worry. I can still, you know, there's no there's no rule saying I can't sing. So I was in loads of bands and did loads of fun stuff, but then I kind of haven't been able to do much lately because politics as well was unfolding before our very eyes and has kept me busy. But... You're a doctor, politician, musician, and kickboxer. That's, and mum. And mum. Mum, that's busy. That's incredible. I have one job and I do it quite badly. <laughs> no, Aww. I think you'll find, if you think about it, most people have multiple jobs. Yeah, right. Most people have multiple jobs. It's about the frequency at which you do that thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, let's just jump straight in here because we just started the public phase of the COVID inquiry, which has been a long time coming. Um, have you managed to see much of it so far? Well, I watched it yesterday. Yeah. Um, and if I'm really honest, I found it incredibly triggering. Yeah, I was going to say, what was that experience like for you? Because just uh, just give us the background on it. Obviously, you're a qualified medical doctor. And at the start of the pandemic, you went back into... You actually went back into the hospital that I was born in. Cool. St. George's in, in Tooting. Well, that'll yeah. explain a lot about how magnificent <laughs> you are, Nish. <laughs> um, you know, anyone born in Tooting is a, is a solid shout. Um all, all, all sort of jokes aside, I mean, I, I mean, I fell into politics by accident. That's a that's a whole other story in and of itself. But I never stopped being a doctor, and my specialism is emergency medicine, so A and E, and I've done a lot of intensive care as part of that training. And I've spent over a decade being a humanitarian doctor, uh, working in war zones, natural disaster areas, seeing genocide, all sorts of things. You name it, and I thought I'd seen it all. And then the pandemic broke out. And I just sort of offered myself up to the hospital where I work to do more shifts than ever before. And what, I also... What's that decision for you as a as a person? Yeah. Because like, I, you know, I have family members that basically did similar things. What's that decision like for you? Is it an easy decision? It's a no-brainer. Right. It's, a no, it's literally a no-brainer. It's like I'm hardwired to be a doctor. It was the thing I always wanted to do, the thing that I, I couldn't do for various reasons and then I could. And so for me, like if you were to sort of like cut me open apart from seeing some liquid curry in there you'd find <laughs> you'd find literally like uh, that is who that's the core of who I am so I always was 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 doing shifts anyway but yeah. the moment you know that your colleagues need you more than ever for me it, it even though it was scary because obviously it's a virus that no one knows anything about it just seemed like the the right and obvious thing to do and so I went back and I was doing three or four shifts a week and then I was asked by a colleague to join the family support liaison team at another hospital as well, working in intensive care, to be the one that delivered the messages from loved ones to their families who were dying. And on a number of levels, personally, it was really hard because I remember, because we didn't have PPE at the beginning, remember that? Mm. Um, I remember coming home and just sort of shouting through the letterbox, don't let the kids come anywhere near me. You know, and they were little, so I was like, tell them to stay upstairs. And I remember, like, getting undressed in the porch and trying to... Well, it's not really a flashy porch. It's like a little, like, one, like, centimetre square area. But I was like, if I can take off my clothes yeah. that travel to the hospital, because obviously, like, we wear scrubs. But if I could take off my clothes and then go and jump in the shower before the kids touch me, maybe I won't infect them. All this was really sort of prevalent in my mind. And messages at two or three o'clock in the morning from colleagues saying we're scared... Um, so all of that was 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 really difficult. But for me, nothing will ever let me forget how 
traumatic it was taking those messages. So people would phone up saying, I want to inquire about how my dad's doing, um, or we would phone them up with an update. And they'd be saying things like, oh, can you just tell him to hold on? The grandkids love him. They miss him. Can you please tell mum that we love her? We're all thinking of her. Because these are people who said goodbye to their loved ones in the back of an ambulance, told them they'd meet them at the hospital, only to realise that they couldn't. And then before they knew it, they were going to be dying. And then you would have a family of five show up because we were in the privileged position of sometimes being able to take a family member in to say goodbye family of five would show up you've got to pick one like how do you do how do you do that how do you pick one and then and then going into the intensive care just seeing rows and rows of people that looked like my dad that looked like our family members that would be working in the shops driving the buses um working in the sorts of jobs where they couldn't work from home they were keeping the the economy going, the communities surviving, eating food and, and stuff. And, and they were the ones lying there. Our, you know, my colleagues from hospital lying there. And I remember finishing my shifts, just feeling like I was having an out-of-body experience and feeling just anger, just, just this sense of anger. Because even though I'd seen in my career genocide, war, the very worst of what humans can do to each other. I felt to myself, Rosanna, this is, this is avoidable. This was avoidable. And it laid bare for me all the inequalities that led me into politics in the first place, all the inequalities that we know exist in our community. And I, and I had this like burning sense of pain and, and anger. And when things get get tough in politics because a lot of it is just campaigning fighting for a better country for your family and everyone's families you always have to have a why why do you do this and that applies to people in all sorts of jobs what's what's your why what's the thing that keeps you going when it's hard and for me I'll tell you what my why became it was in the um, second wave of the pandemic when actually it, it seemed even more overrunning the NHS than, than, than the first wave. And we were seeing people coming in younger and younger. And I was um, in the intensive care at the Royal London Hospital, again, as part of the family support liaison team. And this time we had PPE and I was behind this, you know, seven layers of stuff. And um, taking an iPad to a bedside, I was asked if I could take this iPad to this bedside. And there was this 28-year-old mixed race lady who had been pregnant and had her baby cut out of her in the intensive care and the baby was in the neonatal intensive care unit and there was on the other side of this iPad screen there were three children under six I turned it on and I was like hi you know I'm the doctor one of the doctors looking after your mummy and I witnessed a discussion that I'll never forget as long as I live. Till my dying day, I'll never forget this. And they discussed how they could wake their mum up from sleeping. Oh, God. And they said, Doctor, can, can our mum hear us? And I said, she can feel your love. She can feel your love all day, every day, whether or not you're on the iPad or not. And they shouted in unison to their mum, Mummy, mummy, wake up. You've been asleep too long. And for me... 
that shattered me and I knew that their lives would have been shattered in an immeasurable way themselves. They'll never move on from that. And so when I watch the testimonies of the people who are talking about the goodbyes they never had, about the promises they made to their mums that they'd be okay, about losing a parent and a sibling within five days, the anguish on their faces as they're presenting this, I think it's so powerful and it's so important that we remember as we're all excited to be able to book holidays again and not get mask acne and all the things that everyone was happy about and the world moves on, it's that feeling that for millions of people, they're never going to move on. They're never going to get that closure. And I carry with me a, a level of pain about that, really and truly. And I know that so many of my colleagues do. And the coffee room that used to be a place of bars and chat in between shifts is just full of staff just just looking blankly out the window um and it took a real it took a real toll on people what's it like to go from that experience of those three kids on their ipad trying to wake their mother up and then go into the house of commons and be have and this is a specific phrase that he used the then health secretary comment on your tone does the secretary of state acknowledge that many frontline workers feel that the government's lack of testing has cost lives and is responsible for many families being unnecessarily torn apart in grief. Uh, no, I don't, Mr Speaker. I think that the, I welcome the Honourable Lady to her post as part of the Shadow Health Team. Uh, I think she might uh, do well to take a leaf out of the Shadow Secretary's book in terms of tone. Just on a personal level, what is it then like to have to deal with Matt Hancock? Pity. Overriding pity for him, firstly, that, that he was so out of touch with reality. And I believe in karma, and his karma's come around. But for me, what that exchange truly epitomised was when people say that the public feels that politicians are out of touch with their lives. Mm -hmm. that, that exchange epitomised that for me. He wasn't even going to give me the respect of recognising what I was saying as a clinician. And, I, and the question that I asked him at the time wasn't about me personally. It was, it was about a collective group of people who were working on the front line. And, you know, did he acknowledge what they were going through and what they were experiencing and having to tell families? And... I could sit here and say, oh, I was outraged and, oh, I thought he was racist because I'm a brown woman. And I could say all of these things and all these lovely sound bites about how I felt. But all I did was think, good grief. What people think about politicians is often very true. Mm. And actually people said, you know, do you, do you want an apology? Are you demanding an apology? And I was like, well, what would an apology do? What, what I want, what I wanted from him was an acknowledgement of what was going on in our NHS. What I wanted from him was to acknowledge the Care for Carers package that I'd put forward on behalf of the Labour Party for frontline workers' mental health. I mean, even now, six million sick days are taken alone due to mental ill health in the NHS every year. That's going to be hugely because of the 
exhaustion and mental health impact and the PTSD of dealing with COVID. Along with the fact that our NHS has been decimated from the inside out by the by the Conservative government, but it, it's it's that 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 isn't going to go away for so many people, and and I I think that my wish is that politicians would would get out of Whitehall and go and try and really walk a mile in some people's shoes and come and do a shift. I mean, I've invited them to come and do a shift with me in A and E. Because they would really see, first of all, most people don't know or care what their names are. They just want to know if I need help or my mum needs help or my child needs help, I can get an ambulance, I can get to hospital and I can get seen. Mm. And I remember, so my dad was in a care home and I remember what it was like for families of, with loved ones in care homes. And, and my dad had dementia. He had that rare form that Bruce Willis has um, where he could recognise us but he couldn't talk or communicate properly at all. And I remember feeling he's going to think when we don't love him, that we're not there, that we don't care. And I remember taking my two little girls and, and, and standing outside the care home and asking, like phoning the staff, like, can you bring him to the window? And us putting on Pharrell Williams happy and trying to do a little <laughs> dance just so he could not feel forgotten about. And, and he... He passed away two years ago and I remember how robbed I felt of that last year with him. And I was grateful that I could be with him at the end. At, but I remember at the end thinking to myself, like, that was so painful and my, and my grief response was very extreme. Um, uh, but at least I got to say goodbye. Mm. Yeah. And And what must that have been like for just... Millions of family members. Because if you look at the number of deaths and then multiply that by the number of family members, that's millions. It's a huge proportion of our population who are just yeah. in this perpetual yeah. grief cycle. Yeah. What do you hope from the inquiry? You know, you were saying earlier, like, there's no point getting an apology from Matt Hancock, but there does need to be something that comes out of this trauma that we've all collectively gone through. Do you think the COVID inquiry could offer some solution? What are you hoping from it? I think I'm hoping for a couple of things. Firstly, I would like there to be, where possible, some form of closure for families. Yeah. You know, even if you can't bring loved ones back, to legitimise people's feelings that mistakes were made and apologies given. I think that's important for people to have that chance. I think it's really important that lessons are learned for how we move forward, because this isn't going to be the last time we've been we go through a pandemic. And I think preparedness is is a real key. I think we need to say, what can we do to mitigate lives lost if this happens again? And I and I I mean it's hard because it's gonna last years. Yeah. 2026, they think maybe around that sort of time we might actually get the full findings. But what just I mean, this is too big a question for you to answer, and so I'm not <laughs> expecting a full. But just like, what are some key points that we were not that our preparedness was not there at the start of the pandemic? What are three ways or a couple of ways that we were underprepared at the start of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, look, we we knew something was going to come at some point. We 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 know that. Um, I think you know, to be fair to the government, they were probably expecting some flu type illness right. to come. I don't think they were expecting the sort of virus that we had, but for us not to have PPE 
Yeah. I mean, that was sending lambs to the slaughter. We 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 lost frontline NHS colleagues. We lost care home colleagues. We, we you know we that that was a that was a travesty, and we know that warnings were given. Yeah. About yeah. that. And and then what ensued with you know dodgy contracts with dodgy mates. I mean, that's just that's just laughable. Um, and I think things like you know the prime minister of this country not going to Cobra meetings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like yeah. this has to be taken seriously. Yeah. Deadly virus. Yeah. Cobra meeting. Go to it. Attend it. Maybe yeah. it'll be helpful for the country. Doesn't seem like a it's massive obvious. ask. It doesn't, it doesn't seem no. like a massive ask. Yeah, it's not. I guess. Listen. In his defence, he had to write his stupid fucking book about Shakespeare. Well, you know, Shakespeare was a was an important dude. Yeah, and uh, look, someone must write a book on Shakespeare. Surely we need one out there. And we just don't have enough academics or universities or really anyone else writing about well, maybe Shakespeare. Maybe if you want to write, write books like that, maybe don't be the Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the answer. <laughs> it's like a little bit That's basic. That's the answer. Yeah. Um, Rosanna, I want to talk to you about mental health. Obviously, you are the Shadow yeah. Minister for Mental Health and what you described there, the mental health of very, very crucial workers in the NHS that there's a shortage of and we really need to retain. But also, you know, all the kids who had to stay behind on lessons and everyone who is grieving and people who sectors completely closed down and they're out of jobs. Mental health in this country is at some of the worst. I wondered if you could just talk to me a little bit about Labour's plan for mental health. Sure, I'd be delighted to. So, I mean, we have a huge crisis in mental health at the moment. If I just give you some of the numbers, even, it, it just sort of sets the scene. You've got 1.6 million people on waiting lists um, to be seen by a mental health specialist. 900,000 hours children spent in a and in, in a year. 5.4 million hours of people in A&E in crisis, adults and children. I mean, it, it, it is phenomenal. And... When I do my shifts, so I do shifts in both adult and children's A&E, see kids coming in crisis and it, it's very difficult to kind of create that trust with them. It takes time. So you go in and you talk to them and it takes an hour or so and they might have tried to take their own life and their parents have given up work to be at home on you know suicide watch because they can't get the help that they need. They've been on a waiting list for so long. And the child tells you, doctor, there's no point in you being here. No one's going to come. No one cares. It's pointless. I don't want to talk to you. You build up that relationship and you say, please, just like, just, just give me five. Go and make that call to CAMS. They are overstretched, overworked. I was just like, please, please, I'm begging you, please. Can you just come, please? I'm begging you, please. I've promised a child. Can you just come? Even if you just come for two minutes, please, because we're going to lose this child otherwise. They're like, I'd love to come. I'd love to come, but I can't. I'm swamped. I can't. And I've got to go back into that room. Parents are in pieces. The child's like, see, I told you no one's coming. Yeah. And that is where we're at. And so a key thing is we absolutely have to bring down waiting lists. In, in mental health... It isn't about shiny machines and technology. It's about a workforce. And we have a workforce that is just so stretched, that is exhausted, that is leaving in droves. I mean, e even if you look at psychiatry doctors, um, a group of psychiatry doctors, junior doctors who are training that I spoke to recently, they're, 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 a, hu a huge proportion of them are planning on leaving as soon as they're qualified. I mean, why would they want to stay here with the current state? And so... Um, so Labour's pledge is that we would, within the first term in office, and it really is bold, um, recruit 8,500 new mental health staff while um, retaining the ones that we've already got, 
to bring down the waiting list so that people can begin treatment within a month. I mean, that sounds amazing, but where are you going to get them from if everyone's getting trained and leaving? We're, we're talking about, about a plan to ensure that the staff that, that want to leave mm -hmm. feel that it's worth staying so that there are possibilities for them to move and grow in their career, that they're feeling valued. Because right now, one of the reasons people want to leave is because they're not able to take their annual leave because they're too short-staffed. They're working double shifts. They're so exhausted, they're falling asleep on shifts. So it's, it's about saying... If you have a bigger workforce, you're able to have a better quality of life because you're not covering everybody else. Mm. It will take time to recruit and train, which is why we're saying it'll be in the first term in office. But it will be transformative for people to be able to be seen, seen and treated within a month. But beyond that pledge, we're also saying like not everyone can you can't not everyone can go to their mum and talk about their problems or go to their teacher at school. So we would open an open access mental health hub in every community for children and young people to be able to go in and say, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. I'm, I'm having these I'm thoughts. really scared because I love this plan. I'm just yeah. going to be honest. I love this, love the sound of it. I'm, yeah. On a personal note, I've had my life transformed by, uh, yeah, you know, course. relatives of mine being sectioned and the, the lack of provision. Oh, I'm so I, sorry. So I, mm. I'm so nervous that in the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of brilliant labour plans scale back because of funding. Yeah, the childcare, the green plan, really, really good plans. But we... It, Oh, is this, just, this, is, we, this is going to happen, right? This is going to happen. And I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if I didn't think it would. And that's why suicide prevention was front and centre of Keir's health mission just a couple of weeks ago when mm -hmm. it was launched. And, um, it, you know, every life lost to suicide is a life that could have been saved, I think. And, and um, you know, I don't want to ask personal questions about anyone's personal experiences, but but... If you speak to anybody who has lost someone to suicide, it is it is it is a grief that there's just no coming back from. It's not like getting over it; it's just learning to live with it. And that 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 like the mental health impact that losing someone that way has on the whole family is just phenomenal. And yeah, and and so having an open access mental health hub, getting people the treatment when they need it because prevention is more important. And and we know people get sicker the longer they're waiting. But also, what we're saying is is that we would have. Um, specialist mental health support in every school. And it, it is bold. And I, I understand that that people are at breaking point now. They, they don't believe the cavalry are coming. But I wouldn't be sitting here and I wouldn't have had this brief for three years and still be in it if I didn't believe in it and I didn't believe that we were going to bring about a change. Well, exactly as you said there about the preventability of it. You know, yeah. Mental health is one of those areas of medicine where many, many, many people can turn their lives around. They can. You know, it's amazing. And so the fact it gets this far is totally preventable. Um, so it's great to hear that schools are on the plan, community workers on the plan, stopping people getting that far. I am sorry to keep asking the same question, but will there really be money for it? Because I think I we're just think feeling a bit burned we're this week. Burned. Because, <laughs> only because uh, Emily Thornbury was here last week and was so, in a brilliant way, so animated and strident about the Green Plan. And then, you know, 24 hours later... Rachel Reeves was saying, okay, we're going to have to scale this back. And I understand that, you know, there are changing economic circumstances, but just like, I really want to, we we really want to believe that this plan yeah. is going to no, happen. No, I understand. But 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 just on the green plan, it's not it's not being scaled back. It's, yeah. it's still going to be delivered. It's just going to be delivered in the, in the second half of the term. Okay. Because of the, the, 
the way the economy was left was was, was just crap. Yeah, I mean, the trust like, a bomb. Yeah, 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 and 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 the the fiscal landscape has changed, which which caused uh, that to have to happen. But um, we we will fund our mental health plan through clo- through through closing tax loopholes. Yeah. Um, we know exactly which loopholes that 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 is. We also um, will will pay for part of it by levying VAT on private schools. So the plan is there. I believe with all my heart and soul that it's going to be delivered. Um, but the most important thing we can do now, really and truly, is that it's not you I need to convince. Uh, really, it's the public. They yeah. have to believe. They have to believe it. Um, and we need to get that. We need to get that message out there so that they they believe it. Because I I, I really think fundamentally, and I and I see this when I do my shifts, is that the language that we use in Westminster and in the bubble that that we all live in to some extent. It, it's it's not the real lived experiences of of most of the country because really when they're sitting at their dinner table, they're not talking about our growth compared to the rest of the G seven. Yeah, they're Absolute thinking worst dinner party. I do not never please never invite me to a dinner party like that. Thank you. About like your fish and chips, your pecorino, yeah, 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 your yeah. Curry, whatever it is you're eating, you're thinking to yourself, "Can I keep giving food to my children? Yeah. Can my mum get her cancer appointment in two weeks so that her cancer doesn't spread and she dies unnecessarily? Can I keep this roof over my head? Can I turn on the lights and the heating? Yeah. That is what 100%. people want to understand, and what they want to understand is is voting Labour." going to give me that and that is the job that we have at hand and that is the job that I have when it comes to mental health to try and convince people that that is what they will have and it's it's a look it's not an easy task and I think we cannot be complacent about anything we cannot be complacent about what's going to happen in the next general election Mm. we just got to keep going and work work hard and put one foot in front of the other and keep trying but ultimately the the people that I see when I do my shifts, the people that have not had that closure, the staff that I see that feel like they, they just can't come into work anymore because they are broken beyond belief, they just need to know it's going to get better and they need to have that hope. And that's that's that message that we have to get out there is that message of hope and that it can get better. Because otherwise, what what else is left? You've even got it in your T-shirt, look, one hope, one quest. It's <laughs> a sign. That's from one of our greatest South Londoners, uh, Roots Manoeuvre. <laughs> no, well, yes. I love it. Um, got... Rosanna, we're going to have to say goodbye to you. Oh, no. I know. How quick. you got, you got to go. you got jobs to do. Got you got job, kickboxing. Yeah. you got music to record. <laughs> yeah. you got a doctor shift and you got an MP surgery. Oh, my God. <laughs> we got, we got fuck all else to do. We're podcasters. <laughs> Very awesome ones at that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So true. I'll be putting that on my CV endorsed by the Labour Party. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's official. Sorry to tell you. It's a big You can quote me on that one. We'll get that in our official lines. No, look, honestly, thank you so much for sharing the plan. Thanks. And we hope sincerely that it comes to fruition. Yeah, and thanks and very we, much yeah. for taking the time. We really appreciate thanks it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets. 
the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. We couldn't leave you, of course, without naming our hero and villain of the week. Nish, you're up first. I know you're a slightly embittered Manchester United fan, so I'm sure you're uh, finding it really hard to see Manchester City just triumph really strongly, famous treble. Well, it was a dark day for humanity as a species. I mean, listen, it's very difficult to talk about this because it's very difficult in football because there is obviously, you know huge uh, uh, tribal loyalties and also, you know, you're always open to accusations of bias if you're a Manchester United fan talking about Manchester City. But I just, I've picked as a villain of the week, sports washing as a concept. The Abu Dhabi owned football club, Manchester City, won the Champions League to claim the treble. Uh, In golf, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a merger between the Saudi-backed LIF tour and the PGA, which essentially means that Saudi Arabia owns the sport of golf. All of this has come uh, in less than a year after we saw the Qatar World Cup culminate in, uh, you know, a final that people celebrated as being one of the best in the competition's history that was ultimately won by Argentina, whose star player, Lionel Messi at the time, was playing for the Qatari-owned Paris Saint-Germain. It is something that we need to talk about and it is something that I think there needs to be legislation around because, you know, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, Saudi Arabia are all ha- all have a questionable human rights record and they are using sport to launder their reputation. I say this with no bias, malice or prejudice, but there's a conversation that desperately needs to be had. I feel really bad because when you said Saudi Arabia effectively owns golf, my mind just went, oh, because they're a golf state. That's what that's what my mind did. I hate that about my mind. It's an awful situation to be in. Because it's because it's a golf state. Because <laughs> it's a golf state. That's not why. I know it's not why. This, listen, there is a tiny little Tim Vine living in, in <laughs> yeah. all of us, and we should allow him to flourish where possible. Okay, your turn now, Coco. Who is your PSUK uh, hero of the week? Well, obviously, just to wind you up, I wanted to say uh, human Benadorm and Jack Grealish. <laughs> Listen, I don't like sports washing. I don't think it's good that we're just uncomplicatedly celebrating Manchester City. There's lots of brilliant sports writers that have not been doing that. But I think you can also separate out the fact that Jack Grealish it seems like a laugh. <laughs> seem like someone you want to go out with. He seems like a laugh. He would definitely buy you a kebab, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, I've seen some videos of him online this week where it looks like he wouldn't be able to organise his motor skills (laughs) sufficiently to even tap a payment out for a kebab. (laughs) 
Oh, gosh, he really is the people's prince, isn't he? But I'm not going to pick Jack Grealish because it is Pride Month. Now, I know Pride Month is uh, not without its own controversies in terms, particularly around you're looking at sponsorship and the commercialisation of it. But nonetheless, it is a great source of some wonderful stories. Uh, one that caught my eye was uh, Tate Britain had employed some vibe checkers for its one day Queer and Now Pride Month event. And that seemed to really annoy the Telegraph. <laughs> they, 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 they wrote a whole article dedicated to vibe checkers. What is vibe checkers? And actually, I think I think a vibe checker is a good idea. Politics should have vibe checkers. I think that would be great. I think, I think any vibe checker in British politics over the last <laughs> decade would have simply quit from exhaustion. Yeah. The vibes are bad. Guys, they're bad and they're getting worse. <laughs> but I'm not going to pick the vibe checkers either. I'm going to go for Miriam Margulies, who, uh, I mean, she's just fabulous and hilarious. And what is her life? I don't know, but she has gotten naked at 82 for British Vogue's Pride Month special. Uh, here she is telling a Vogue writer what's in her handbag. I'm going to fart now. <laughs> there we go. First thing I'm going to take out might surprise you. It's an onion. I'd always carry an onion because I love them. Mmm. There's one other little round red thing. No, not that, darling. Radish is almost, well, I won't say a sexual delight, but it's close because it's a big bang in your mouth if you know what I mean. This book is a memoir. It's got naughty tales of the people I've slept with and the people I haven't slept with. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, these are my knickers. <laughs> a keen, of course. Spare pair. I'm not very good at holding on to my water. So when I want to pee, I have to get to a loo quickly. The gusset, most important. Look how clean it is. I like a strong gusset. <laughs> <laughs> Everything she says is comedy gold. Every line comes out of her mouth. And also just like, you know, the very few women who uh, get away with her uh, blue sense of humour. Yeah. Um, I think she's hilarious. And uh, there's a beautiful quote in her uh, British Vogue interview, which says, I think gay people are very lucky because we're not conventional. We're a group slightly apart. It gives us an edge. We're good musicians. We're good artists. I like being gay. I wouldn't want to be straight for anything, which I think is an absolutely lovely sentiment. And I also really love that... Uh, she swore about Jeremy Hunt last yeah, did, year yeah. on the radio. She also, um, my uh, my girlfriend bought a cameo from her for our <laughs> friend for his birthday. And let me tell you, she went hard. Oh, really? She put the work in. Okay. It was, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think we're into endorsements on this podcast, but if I was endorsing anything, it would be get a cameo off Miriam Margulies. <laughs> yeah. she, she, I mean, she's literally phoning it in, but... Metaphorically, she is absolutely not phoning it in. It was uh, it was very good stuff. Um, lovely. Let's take a quick dip uh, into our inbox. Uh, there was a lot of reaction to uh, our interview with uh, Shadow Attorney General uh, Emily Thornberry in the previous episode. Um, Kristen Nelson Patel watched on YouTube and left this comment. I was really disappointed in Emily Thornberry's response to Nish and Coco trying to share how they felt about the racist impact of that attack out on Rishi Sunak. They're 100% right and she couldn't even really acknowledge that their perspective was valid. She just got defensive instead of learning. I mean, listen, I felt that it was a forthright exchange of views. I think... I think, you know, I think with stuff like this, if you, it's always important to acknowledge where you feel you may have fallen short. And I feel personally that I didn't articulate clearly what I was trying to say. You know, the, the idea that 
because there's an element of misinformation to oh, the claims Nish, about Sunak. She knew what we were saying. <laughs> no, what are I, you on about? I, I she just I don't think I was we... I don't think I articulated it clearly enough, you know, that there's a like element of misinformation to it. So why not like go after him, but go after him for things that he's done. And any kind of racist dog whistle does probably doesn't impact him, but it does impact ordinary Asians. And I but I just think, you know, in the spirit of openness, we should acknowledge when we've got things right and I personally felt that I didn't uh, properly articulate the point that I was trying to make last week. Well, I disagree. I think it was very articulated and I See, think now that we're was... having a disagreement. <laughs> You know, I, I I I was also disappointed in the response, but my hope is that, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a politician. And I think actually sometimes when I meet politicians, not Rosanna, obviously, but, you know, when in the past when I've met them, I've thought I wouldn't have the stomach for it because it is kind of your job to go out and defend your party. That is your job, even if internally you're sort of like, oh, that wasn't quite right. But I like to think that perhaps next time they are pulling together an attack ad like that, they'll remember... You know, Nish Kumar and Coco Khan once said <laughs> on a podcast that this would not be a cool thing to Please do. Please stop fucking doing this. <laughs> so we maybe won't do it. And that would be a nice, pleasing thought. Um, if you missed that uh, uh, conversation, you can listen back to it. Episode six is up on our feed uh, and you can find the clip on our Twitter feed at Pod Save the UK. And uh, we've got one here for you, Nish. It's from Ooh. Tim Holden. He's the head of politics at Carmel College in St. Helens, Merseyside. And he says... One of my A-level politics students, Beck, persuaded me to start listening to your pod. I've become an avid listener and now recommend your show to all of my students. As a thank you to Beck, could you give her a shout out? She's a big Nish Kumar fan. She's also an aspiring comic. I'm sure she'd love some stand-up advice mixed into all the politics. It's quite a big brief there from Tim. Yeah, like- first of all, hello, Beck. Uh, thanks for uh, forcing your teachers to listen to this show. Sometimes young people interested in comedy do ask me for advice and I should be clear that when they ask me there's always a part of me that was like fucking hell find someone better (laughs) (laughs) but whenever people ask me for advice about comedy I always give them the same quite boring response which is you just got to do it and keep doing it the one thing that's disheartening is that it's not something you can practice for it's not like a musical instrument where you can sit in your room and you can clock the hours by uh, playing your piano over and over again and getting slowly incrementally better. Stand-up comedy, if you want to do it, has to be done in front of an audience. No amount of practicing in front of your mirror is a substitute for going up in front of people and doing it. That's how you improve. That's how I I still work on material that way. I, I can't sit in a room and write. I have to get out in front of people and see how it plays. That's the slightly disheartening bit. The heartening bit is... It is possible to get better at stand-up comedy. Mm. I am living proof (laughs) that it is possible to get... I mean, also, that does depend on your opinion of my comedy. But actually, the reality is you can get better at stand-up. It's a muscle. Please, can can you tell me a joke that was rubbish that you once did? I I mean, there's plenty of available evidence (laughs) on YouTube. (laughs) Oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, I've done all sorts of... I mean, I've done shit jokes recently. It's not like something (laughs) as a whole. But yeah, it's the the good thing, Beck, is if you want to do it, the only solution is to uh, just get up and do it. But in doing it, you can get better. And it really is is as simple as that. Good luck. I hope to do a gig with you at some point. Well, we hope to hear from more of our listeners. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email psuk at reducelistening.co.uk or you can even send us a voice note on WhatsApp if that's the thing you like. Our number is 07514 644 752. Wrong number. Our number is... <laughs> I hope they leave that whole thing in. <laughs> 
Uh, new number who dis? <laughs> this is what the moment is. Our number is 07-514-644-572. Right number. Right number. Internationally, that's plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. If you're new to the show, remember to hit follow on your app and you'll get every new episode every week. And if my numbers confused you, it will be in the show notes and it will be correct. You did all of that. I'll say this spectacularly well. <laughs> Oh, thanks. Maybe I could go into stand-up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Pod Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by Will Darking and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer, David Dagahi. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson, Madeline Harringer and Michael Martinez. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok. We're at Pod Save the UK or on Instagram through the Crooked Media channel. And hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.